If you are vulnerable to psychic damage from roguish language, stay away from these gibbering mouths. But if you intend on listening to this podcast about enriching your fantastical group hallucinations, you're too far gone already. Your next game is going to add an effortless rule set, and here's why. In this episode, we find some answers to how can we encourage engagement from the get-go in our games? And how do we make it easier to choose the right rules for our group? And what approach makes for some of the best content in the game right now? Welcome to the Oak and Chance podcast. I'm Travis. And I'm his brother, Jordan. So today... Today we're talking about rules. <laughs> yes, but that's really broad. We're not talking about specific rules. We're just we're more like talking about the philosophy of rules and how to understand rules better and how to make them work for you way better. This is kind of the antithesis of the podcast so far. <laughs> like we've stayed away <laughs> from rules for the most part. Yeah, this is our rules episode. And again, you're not going to hear any a single specific rule during this episode. It's really about choosing the rules for your group that are going to work because it's so easy to get lost in homebrew that somebody else has cooked up. You think, oh, this looks neat. I think it could add something to my game. But what does it actually add? Because we've been down this road before. And before we knew it, we were bogged down with trying to figure out the ripeness level of a 36-hour off-the-stem apple so that we knew how much (laughs) HP would replenish after it's been degrading and Uh, a single apple chomp means two or four or something's gone terribly wrong by this point. (laughs) I do remember this one early day within our tabletop career, which, you know, you start thinking like, oh, these rules made for some really fun times, this book of rules. So it stands to reason that that means more fun, more rules. If I can find a different rule set, I'll be able to jam that into my game and all of these extra supplements and all kinds of stuff. If I could just jam it all in there, I'll have something that's even more fun. If I have 50 books on my shelf, that means I've got 50 times the fun, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's just logic. I know we're being facetious right now, but there is this mentality of like, oh shit, like how do I inject some more fun? Players have asked me for this, to add this into my game. Now I need to go and find something like, oh, I got to scour the internet and where am I going to find this rule set that will help my player achieve X goal? And then maybe it's good, maybe it's not. Maybe if I try and jam it in there, they'll bite it'll be what they're really looking for. Right. And then we get this game that's just bogged down with crazy rules and half of them, you know, they never really engaged with and the other one got them a castle and you know, there's just, there's so much and it's hard to know what to do in that moment. And like you said, at best, we spend the entire day scouring for rules because like a classic example is a player that wants a gun. Okay, well, what does that mean? Do I just add guns into my world? Do I add a gunslinger class? Do I what class do I use? Because I know there's multiple out there. Do I uh, do I have to now infuse my entire world with guns? Like, how do I take this? And the easier solution as a DM is often to just say, "No, raw rules as written." Yeah. If it's not in a <laughs> wizard's book, I'm not approaching it you can't bring it to my table which is a whole other conversation but that's even getting confusing now so we thought we would dive into this in more detail and bring on the expert right he's created some of the best supplements that we've ever used like they're above and beyond like if we created just one supplement of this level and quality and attention to detail we would quit the podcast knowing that we peaked <laughs> this guy he just keeps pumping out more he's responsible for one of our all-time favorite 5e supplements the armor's handbook equipment upgrade and rune magic system which has sold more than ten 
thousand copies and is used at thousands of tables around the world. It's got everything you could ever want for armor and weapons in D&D, and that's a hook and chance guarantee. <laughs> and you might already be thinking, it's another rule set, big deal. But you're wrong, because again, this is the rule set. It has thorough rules for how to upgrade your gear and do all the things you've dreamed of doing with your weapons, but you didn't know how to ask for, like making your weapon sawtooth, which adds slashing damage. But then it goes into the wondrous world of runes, which adds all this really cool stuff to arms and armor that I gave up hoping for so long ago. And ultimately, it is a better role-playing tool because it's something that you as a player can say, you know what? I'm going to keep my grandfather's sword. I'm just going to make it more badass. I'm not going to give it up for the magical weapon that my GM now has to think, okay, what would this character really want? Now I got to find a, a weird trunk in some deep, dark cave to try <laughs> to deliver this item to my player. And But what if they don't go in that room? Well, you can say, screw all of that. I'm going to use the Armorer's Handbook and allow my players to upgrade their damn weapons. Why was this never something that has been addressed before Heavy Arms? Right. And do it themselves. Because like you said, that's just putting more work on the DM. He's also released a companion supplement for Herbalism and Alchemy, which gives the same simplicity and fun to your world as the Armorer's Handbook, just with that uh, different spin on it. It reinvigorates your nature-based characters. Then you've got guns. Guns have never worked in D&D. Play a different RPG if you want guns. They said it couldn't be done until Heavy Arms miraculously made them work with the Gunslinger class. With such cool flavor abilities. Then you got the Ranger, which has sat firmly as an underwhelming class for eight years since its release. So Heavy Arms worked some serious magic and created a rework that we will always use from now on. He brings the kind of problem-solving thought process from his background as an engineer into his running compendium of carefully considered and frankly brilliant subclasses, feats, spells, and magic items all on his Patreon. And we could not be more thrilled to welcome him to the show. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Heavy Arms. Hello. Thank you for apparently what's not a sacrifice for you, but would be the greatest sacrifice to Travis and I, which is <laughs> trying to do anything productive <laughs> this early in the day. I told Jordan, there is no way he's fresh as a daisy at that early in the morning. And here you are, <laughs> fresh as a daisy. Oh, well. God, we finally made it. <laughs> <laughs> finally, this uh, this episode's been a long time coming. Yeah, it's been in the works for about a year. So long overdue. <laughs> The truth is, every time I listen to this show, I at, at some point during the episode, I'll remember the standing invitation from you guys, and like, <laughs> I experienced this creeping dread. <laughs> like, how could I possibly measure up to all these, you know, professional actors, producers? And, and I'm like, no way, can't do it. The paralysis sets in. <laughs> oh, wow. That's, that's definitely the feeling that we try to get across with our show, <laughs> is creeping dread. <laughs> <laughs> It's more that, like, your show is a, it's a great advice podcast, and I'm thinking, like, what advice can I possibly give? Like, I, I create content, and the content's there. Like, it's right there in the PDF. You know, you can go and buy it. <laughs> well, sure, but what's the juice behind how you make it? And that's what we're going to get into. Yeah, I, I kind of, I realize I have this different set of skills, but it's always been, like, how do I talk about it in a way that's valuable to your audience instead of just me coming on and prattling on about like game design and everyone's like what's this gonna do with D&D <laughs> I agree with that and it's for that very reason that we wanted to have you join us because you know you have a game designer's brain that somehow just makes you know something that has existed in other iterations I'm sure you know a way to upgrade weapons but like the armor's handbook just had this undercurrent of Holy shit, that's so brilliant. Oh, thank you. We said he's he's got to have something that we can mine out of his brain palace. <laughs> and I think that the reason that we were so excited to have you on is because a lot of the guests that you were referencing that we talked to are a lot more on the role play side of the game. And you are one of our first guests that is so focused on the rules and that game design side that 
Travis and I aren't necessarily the pros at, so <laughs> we don't dare touch it is what he means. But let's talk about you as a DM. Like what kind of DM are you? Which way do you lean? Because there's got to be some differences between the way that we DM and the way that you DM. Sure. Mia culpa. first thing I'll say about myself is like, I'm not a natural storyteller, which is precisely why I listen to hook and chance and, and consume all this other content around the internet is to to help me out with that side of my game. The other thing I do is is I create rules. And really, I, I use these rules also as a type of crutch to kind of free up brain space, because it takes a lot more for me to be creative. I'm just not naturally like that. I was actually talking with a friend of mine, and she helped me clarify this when she told me that fundamentally and especially in TTRPGs, there are two types of people. Um, and she referred to them as bards and engineers. And I was like, that makes sense. I'm an engineer. I'm not a bard. <laughs> so like, th there's a spectrum, right? You you can be kind of half and half or, or all the one way or the other. I mean, me, I'm definitely like engineer 19, bard one, maybe 20, yeah. zero. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I think I started in Dungeons and Dragons as like Bard 2 Engineer 0. 0.5. <laughs> so like the purpose of this podcast is also for us to learn all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. I think this is kind of the crux of what we wanted to get to the bottom of with you. And especially in this episode is that there are so many different approaches to DMing. And, you know, from the sounds of it, like yours is to create spaces for people to go and play in instead of necessarily having to focus on funny voices or silly characters you can let them create their own fiction if you give them the just the right rule set sort of yeah i mean you know i enjoy this silly voices and the characters and all that stuff um kind of what i said before though is it 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 takes a lot more effort it doesn't come naturally to me like there's things i know i'm good at and things i know i'm not so good at the things i'm good at I'll put the work into setting up the engine to run itself. And then I don't nice. need to focus on that stuff so much anymore. And I can instead focus on, on my weaknesses. It, you know, it, it probably takes me more time to prep for things like NPC dialogue. I'm terrible at that. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not terrible. I'm okay at that, but it takes me longer. And I think that's something that we struggle with on the flip side of that coin is what makes a good rule set what makes a bad rule set what makes a, a rule set right for our table and our players absolutely and i mean I, I hope that's basically what we're going to get into in this episode well i'd love to get right into it uh, if we swap over to the strategy stateroom sure thing this is the strategy stateroom where inventive and cunning tactics are crafted for when they're needed most All right, so before we get into the actual steps, the meat of this episode, so we've learned a bit about who you are as a DM, but what actually makes you take the step to say, I want to turn this into a full supplement, and by full, I mean it's down to every last detail you can imagine, is it's there. <laughs> like you can, <laughs> as a reader, you can tell that you've put so much thought into it. So like, where do you start with that? Sure. Um... I mean, I have I have so much more homebrew in my personal binder at home than, than what I've actually put out. I'll tend to decide whether I'm going to publish something based on whether I think it's useful to other people. And the Armourer's Handbook was the one where I thought, oh, okay, this is this comes up so often. You know, there's so many people have an issue with it, and and I can see it was the biggest issue that I had when I started playing. That's my rationale when deciding what to publish, and that's that's why the Armourer's Handbook came out. You've mentioned that you kind of you read it and you were like, okay, it, it makes it makes sense. But you know, what drew you to pick it up in the first place? Was it something that was missing from your game? Like, was it obvious? The sweet siren song of "Holy shit, I can upgrade my weapon." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're right. That's always been a weak point of the D and D rules. Is it just gives you a list of weapons and they're all pretty standard. They've got like a tiny modifier, or you can go hog wild and dive into magic items which are just like i, I use them but there are they're not a satisfying system for the player absolutely it seemed like such a gap that D D had 
in the sense that you've got these two problems. You've got players with too much money and unsure what to do with it, and then waiting for the DM to bequeath you something truly incredible and deserving of your epic character. And for some reason, those two never overlapped. Nobody ever joined <laughs> those two thoughts together. Then we get the Armor's Handbook. It, it's a simple thesis, really. I started playing very late 2017. That was my first experience with D&D, uh, playing D&D. I, did, I, I listened to a, a couple of shows which kind of got me into it. Uh, the Adventure Zone was my starting point. But yeah, it was obvious to me by like session, I don't know, maybe session three, that there was this problem. Equipment is pretty much non-existent in the game from from a, from the player's side. You know, it's common enough to say, you know, there's there's plate and that's it. Like once you've done plate, <laughs> you've done equipment. And, yeah. and and when I say equipment, I, I literally mean like the whole of chapter five of the player's handbook. It's just it's not there. It, it, especially money. I'm not just talking about arms and equipment. I'm actually talking about money more than anything else, which is the very start of that chapter. Because money really is the um, the thing that joins equipment to the player. That's what gives the player the choice, the agency, the freedom to engage with equipment. Our experience, because um, I, I jumped into DMing pretty quickly, and, and the experience we had at the table came from you know our, our formative experience with things like Diablo, Final Fantasy, Elder Scrolls. Um, and, and we're also aware of like the the vestiges in Critical Role. So those are the things we were thinking of. There have been a number of kind of versions of the vestiges, and, and they seemed okay, but the, the problem I have with the vestiges is they were really only one step removed from magic items in terms of, yes, they upgrade, but they still have the same fundamental problem of, like, the player doesn't really have any involvement in it. I mean, they do, you know, there is a story, and they upgrade at you know appropriate moments, but it's kind of like saying the player has agency over milestone leveling. They don't really, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're just moving towards that next goalpost. Well, exactly. Yeah. But they can't even, they don't even know where the goalpost is. They know at some right. point in the, at some <laughs> point in the future, there will be, you know, a completed quest where it levels up, you know, what point and what, where in the quest, no idea, but it'll happen at some point. And, and that was the big divergence for me, what I thought were shortcomings from my experience as a player and been like, okay, well, how can we fix that? To get deeper into some of the concepts that helped you build that book, let's get into the steps for this episode. You want to capture inspirations from your players. You want to consider the intent of the rule set. And then you want to watch out for some red flags that I think Heavy is going to be the best person to inform us on. So let's start with capturing your inspirations or figuring out where to go as a dm you're kind of coming into this with fresh eyes going if i add this rule set or if i add this supplement or something to my game what effect is it going to have and how is it going to help or hinder my game which is the part that terrifies me is the the hindering and going oh no i should have never introduced this so take us through kind of your thought process on kind of capturing those inspirations. Sure. I'm probably going to throw some jargon terms. Jargon away. Yeah. The, <laughs> the first one I'll drop is what we call KYC, is know your customer. And as a DM, when you're introducing content, especially like rules, um, the players are your customer. There's no point introducing content that the players aren't interested in. I mean, you can, but it's fundamentally right. a waste of everyone's time. It's a waste of your time in particular. You know, for the Armour's Handbook, for player options, for anything like that, there's this concept of something we want to introduce. You know, we want to introduce equipment upgrading. We want to introduce a revised ranger. You know, we want to introduce um, well, all sorts of stuff, you know, creature harvesting. And the first thing I'll think about is who are my players? What are their cultural touchstones? What What's in their mind when they're thinking about that? So... You know, an easy example is creature harvesting, right? Um, personally, I'm thinking monster hunter. I, I right. guess I'm, I might. That's not the only answer, but that's the one I'm thinking of. Maybe it's fairly common. If I if I'm not sure of you know my group's experience there, I'll just pitch it at them and say, okay, well, what is this? You know, are you interested in this? And 
why are you interested in this? Because the why, they'll almost always tell you, oh, because I want to be this person from this other thing. Yeah, that seems like a really easy conversational question to ask. It's pretty much as they're building their character, right? Like, oh, why are you building this character? Is it, are you inspired by something? Have you played a game like this? At, at the end of the day, every character is a bunch of tropes, a bunch of experiences, especially when you're building a character. You know, nobody comes right. nobody comes with a character idea that is based on nothing. And your first character especially sure. is, you know, you're trying to capture the feeling of one particular thing. And by your fifth, you're like, I'll at least amalgam some of these together Absolutely. so it's not Batman. Uh, yeah. yeah, spot on. <laughs> I was gonna, I was just going to say, like, the only difference between the new player and the experienced player is the number of things you'll mash together. Yeah, for your first player, it's probably <laughs> one. It's probably, you know, I want to be Geralt. That's it. Yeah. Full yeah. stop. And you might as well stop the backstory there. When I'm When I'm making content, I always think of myself when I was playing my first couple of sessions of D&D, how can I make content that works for that guy? Right, absolutely. I suppose um, a, a great fear that I had when I started DMing, must be true for other people as well, is getting over that hurdle of the first two, maybe three sessions where the players don't really know what's going on and, and they're kind of, they're more like what Matt Colville would describe as audience members. They're in a foreign land and they're just looking around and they're waiting for you to give them permission to, almost expressly permission to act because they don't know what's, what they're expected to do, what you expect them to do. But if you, if you help them realize the very simple character vision in their mind with things that they can do, then it's that much easier and that much faster for them to kind of jump in. And that's what I do with all my stuff. I, I want it to be, you take it you drop it in front of the players and they and they know there are things there that they can do proactively straight away. Right. That's what's so powerful to me about things like this is that, you know, if we've been DMing for any length of time, it is so easy to get very innocently, but very quickly out of touch with what that's like. As a new player, you're walking into this game going, well, what can I do? And I do remember running my partner through her very first game. She was definitely a, what do I do? Well, you can do anything. <laughs> but what, like, what would you suggest I do? Well, literally anything. You can go and touch that tree. We can go into town. We can. And so like that is so fascinating in that that's such a great way to, like you said, if, if a character loves Geralt of Rivia, but like this is essentially what I want to build can you help me do that? Exactly. And then you throw down this rule set and they go ham. And then yeah. they get to pursue goals that Geralt would pursue. Exactly. If you think about spellcasting, you know, easily the most developed aspect of 5th edition. If you are a new player and you are playing a wizard, you know exactly what you can do as a wizard. It's your spellcasting. That is the extent of your magic. Right. But for, for players that aren't spellcasters, it's much more woolly in terms of, okay, well, what can I do? I'm a fighter. Um, this is obviously the social aspect of D&D. But again, social is kind of something that comes only when the world has been revealed a little bit more. Right. So for, again, we'll come back to the Armour's Handbook. For that, that's an example of, you know, something the fighter can do, a goal that a fighter can pursue from the jump. You know, what's, what's, what's a common trope of a fighter? I want to get stronger. Okay, well, here's how you do it. And what you need is gold. Okay, so... How do you get gold? And you're off. Totally. God, and that's such a hard thing sometimes to do as a DM to get your players invested. You know, they've just, they've kind of forgotten that their job as players is to kind of pick up what you're laying down in terms of your, in terms of your story. There's a strange NPC over there. Sometimes they don't pick up on that kind of hint. But to be able to drop that down and go, hey, by the way, you can get a spiked sword with 2,000 gold. And then the fighter goes, what do I got to do? Yeah. I'll take any quest. It doesn't matter how dangerous it sounds. Sure. Like, I remember listening to um, an episode you did with Olo Clark. You were doing some descriptions of introducing NPCs to, you know, sort of grab the party. That's like, that's exactly what I need. It was a great episode. But, you know, my approach to a similar thing um, is basically short-circuiting all that. The need to be good at it. 
that's fun, that's <laughs> fundamentally what I do. Um, yeah. So like you know, if the players know that the armor's handbook is something in your game, you don't even need to introduce a blacksmith. They'll ask you like, "Where's the hacking blacksmith?" <laughs> like, yeah, right, there, and it's like you know, you can obviously if you can introduce a really interesting blacksmith, that's great. But the players are automatically you know going to seek that guy out. They know what they can get from him. They are interested in talking with him and and that makes your job so much easier to say like okay well you want to see the plot hook now you know there's the blacksmith the blacksmith um you know he has a problem can you help him with it right and you're off like before you give the players a tool like that all you've got is the player's motivation to level up and when you sit down to play D, you say okay how do i level up well you just kind of do stuff until you get xp and you level up okay what do I do? And you're right. You just have to sit there and say, DM, I guess, provide me with something to do. Sure. Um, it's all about a hot start, I think. You know, how, how can you get the game up and running as quickly as possible? Because, you know, eventually, eventually you're going to have a story, a plot, you know, so kind of that the players are so invested in that, you know, at that point when you're 20 sessions in, like none of this matters. You know, the players want to show up. They want to engage with your story. But for the first half a dozen sessions... It matters a lot. So I really focus on, like, how can you get the players interacting with your world while while you're spending time building that world up for them? You know, what can they do in the meantime, almost? Okay, so that kind of leads us into our second point, which is encourage engagement. And so we've talked about how you like to put these rules in front of the players so that they have somewhere to go, which is fantastic. But is there anything that we can do after that to encourage them to continue and to make sure that players are actually engaged with this content? Because, you know, I can see misreading the situation, plopping something down, and then it doesn't really go anywhere. My great thesis of of homebrew is that players want to play the game. The caveat to that is they might not know how, or put another way, they might not have the tools to do it. They might not have the language, um, which is fundamentally what rules are. There's actually a, a quote I want to just put down from Matt Colville in a video he did last year. Um, the video was called Language Not Rules. I'll probably refer to this video maybe a few more times. The thrust's a bit di- a bit different from what we're going for here, but it's still well worth your time if you're interested in this kind of thing. We'll make sure to link it. Yeah, so what he said is, if players aren't engaging, then you haven't given them a good reason to engage. Oof, super simple. Love uh, it. That's some real talk right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From from old MC. <laughs> <laughs> and and there's another quote actually, and this was I was aware of this long before that video from Matt Colville. It's a pretty famous quote from Sid Meier, the guy who did the Civilization series and and other such things, who said that a game is a series of interesting choices. That's all a game is. So I kind of those two quotes to me kind of that's how you do it. It's just can you check those two boxes? So, yeah, from your perspective, what makes a rule set one that I want to that I want to start using? At the risk of almost sounding cliched nowadays, rules are really all about agency. That's such a buzzword. <laughs> and and that's because like if if we define kind of, you know, what are rules, the most important thing for me is that rules are player facing. If you have something um in your DM folder and the players don't know about it it's not a rule because you know, it's, it's it's not a shared language again this is something matt colville talks about that I'm, I'm not going to repeat it here you can go check out his channel where he basically says and he's he's totally right is that the rules are the common language that the kind of we all come to the table and we all um it's, it's how it's how our characters interact with the world yeah and something you said there really resonates because if it's behind it took me years to learn this but yeah if i've got a rule behind the dm screen that's a guideline for me sure it's not yeah (laughs) nothing else take the example of like creature stat blocks and this is a bit of a hot take but personally i don't think stat blocks are, are rules not really not unless the players know the stat block because it could be anything like if you have a say you've got a red dragon players are probably aware just you know in their general consciousness of fantasy media that okay it's red it's resistant to fire but that's the only that that's where that's coming from like you could have a red dragon that is not resistant to fire like there's 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 nothing saying it has to be resistant until you reveal that it is in fact resistant to fire only when it's resisted fire damage has fire resistance become a rule (laughs) right right wow and that's that's the most modified 
part of D&D by DMs is the stat blocks for exactly that reason. That's a really good point. Sure. I mean, it's, it's one of the reasons I don't publish stat blocks, really, because um, I, I don't really consider them rules. I mean, they are guidelines. Like, at what point the hit points become rules? There's an awful lot of guidance out there or advice saying, you know, well, just ignore hit points or, you know, just that the monster dies when it's dramatically appropriate and that's fine. But I always wonder there, like, what about people who are playing on a virtual tabletop where, like, creatures have a health bar and, and players expect a health bar. So if a, if a creature's right. got, you know, 50 hit points and you do 10 damage to it and you see, you know, approximately 20% of its health disappear, like, okay, now you've, you've established a rule that that creature has approximately 100 hit points. Some players won't count. Some players will absolutely count. Yeah, They will notice that. You know, if, if it suddenly takes another hit for 10 damage or something and it dies, even if it was dramatically appropriate, the players will be like, well, what's going on? Yeah, in a sense, if the hit points, you know, there's so much debate over whether to, you know, keep that totally secret or not. But if the hit points are something that the players are engaging with, why keep them a secret? Players engage with monster hit points. They do. It's it's an expectation from, uh, I suppose, video games, but and and people can call it video gamey, and it might be, but like, it's such a large touchstone in gaming, like you can't ignore it. Well, I mean, you're doing a specific amount of damage with your hits, so it's inherent in the experience. You're wondering how what that did. Exactly. You know? I mean, if if creatures don't have hit points, then damage numbers are meaningless. And it really kind of reframes my job as a DM because, you know, my thought process behind DMing was always, I have to surprise, I have to delight, I have to challenge, I have to, you know, try and push back on the players. Like, that's my role. I'm here as the antithesis to their heroes and and all of their challenge. But like you say, like, I've routinely, you know, I've had players in the past and they know who they are, that knew exactly how many hit points this particular monster had. And then I always saw it as a way that I had to try to surprise them by changing the stat block. And I've spent hours trying to fix and change and and surprise players with those stat blocks. But if that was the part that they enjoyed, then why did I spend so much time doing that? The flexibility of this game is what makes it so amazing. So why am I so rigid sure. <laughs> in my approach? Yeah, and and I want to touch on something else you said there is that you felt that you know you spent all this time doing this prep and you felt that your role is almost to you know to entertain the players and I agree with that to an extent, but I'm also a really big proponent of like the GM is a player as well. Um, right. Like there's there's such a there's there's so much expectation it seems. Um, and again, this is from the perspective of a new group looking to, you know, start D and D. There's there's such an expectation that like the GM is putting on a show for the players, and the mm-hmm. GM is weaving this story, and the GM's job is to pull the players in, and the GM's job is and it's job after job after job. So I really try and focus on like, you know, how do we how do we change that? Because that's such a that's it's it's such a big barrier to people wanting to GM. And and I wish more. I want more people to do it, and I want to make people feel more more in control or, or or feel empowered to actually take that step. And if you can if you can give them rules that that basically you know just well one that work, and two are will be picked up and used by the players, then that's right. just that's something off their plate. You know, creatures is something I would love to tackle one day, but. The current way that, that creature stat blocks work in D and D, I don't feel it's it checks all the boxes that that I have for myself in creating content. Like I, I could churn out a bunch of creature stat blocks, but they would all suffer the same problem that they suffer now. So I'm thinking like I'm not really solving a problem there. I'm just giving you more stuff that you'll have to work on. I mean, something that you kind of touched on there is looking for some of those problems because, like you say, you can create fifty more monsters. But until it's something that they can engage with, it's going to be really hard for them to to take anything off your plate as long as you're running monsters in the traditional sense of running monsters. Whereas, like you say, with something like the Armor's Handbook, it's something that you can put in front of the players and it requires no additional work from you. They'll drive all of it 
And I would be really curious, and you'd probably be a millionaire if you could figure out how to do that for for some of the other rules and some of the other monsters that you know are are squarely oh, yeah. a DM's job. Yeah, anyone who can figure out creatures is going to be a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So I think what what this step has shifted for me is testing different rules to see which ones click with what players, because that's another mini problem is that. Sometimes, you know, a player might not know exactly what they're going to engage with. Mm-hmm. And so I'm definitely going to approach games with more of that, like, what's going to be the the thing that gets this person in? And yeah. and looking at it from a rules perspective rather than a, let me put on a greater show. <laughs> let me right. create a greater NPC. That time might be better spent, like you said, Heavy Arms, is going back to know your customer how do you give them something that they really, really want? Mm-hmm. But you you mentioned something else, um, you know, going back to or segueing into red flags. If we just toss all kinds of things down, they might grab onto something that might <laughs> might end up doing more damage than good. Like <laughs> they fair. might engage with something that I go, oh, no, this is a whole new problem. So what is it that you're really looking for when it comes to some of the rule sets or some of the the supplements that you put in front of your players. Sure. I suppose what you're asking there really is what makes good rules. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> Done in one. And then how cool. to spot right. that instantly. In my opinion, there are three things mainly. Um, and that's consistency, completeness, and balance in that order. Consistency, right? I actually have another phrase from Matt Colville, same video, which is, <laughs> If the system is simple, but robust and consistent with the core rules, then it will make sense to the players. Now, I added the bit there about the core rules, but the reason I bring that up and under the heading of consistency is I think one of the biggest hurdles to introducing any sort of new content is the time investment uh, required to kind of to grok it. Right. And, and that's either the GM or the player. If you give a player a 600-page book, you know, oh, oh, you wanna, you wanna do this thing. Here's a giant tome on how you do it. Like, I know some players who would love that. I know many more who would just be like, nope. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, because I mean, I have some players that won't even read the core rules. So. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> well, I distinctly remember being sent home with an entire book or two, <laughs> saying, "Here's a whole like back in, boy, this would have been three point five kind of era." They had like entire ranger books and they were like, here you go here. You know, if you want to choose which class you're going to you're going to play, take these six books home <laughs> and read and digest them all. Sure. And, yeah. and so there's there's not only does the player have to read it, but, you know, the DM has to have read it as well and, and be right. comfortable with it, at least to give it a skim read. And that's a big ask for a lot of rules. So, yeah, um, you know, kind of first bullet on consistency is short. In, in length. I would say the second bullet is probably short in execution. And coming back to that quote, that means that if the rules that you're giving the players are coming from a place that they already understand, when I say players here, I mean the GM as well, then it's far easier to, to not only understand, but also to run. Because, you know, everyone knows how to make an ability check. You know, you roll a d20, you add proficiency. If you're proficient, you add an ability modifier. That's it. Um, mm-hmm. so that's the basic structure of D&D kind of full stop you kind of you say you want to do something you roll a d20 the dm tells you whether you succeed or fail and maybe you roll another dice to see you know what the outcome is that's kind of quintessential D. so in terms of consistency i would look for something that kind of follows that basic structure i have a, a book for making potions herbalism and alchemy i put out recently and that's like i'm not against you know bringing content in from from other people I do it all the time, but alchemy was a case where there was there's so many um, kind of bites at this cherry out there, but I hadn't really seen one that was just right single ability check resolution. There's an awful lot of kind of multiple checks over multiple stages. I can only describe it as it doesn't really feel like D and D. It feels like you kind of you're doing something else. Accounting. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I really want it to 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 kind of maintain that consistency and also if it has that consistency then it's really easy for the gm and, and also other players to kind of give it a look and say yeah okay that seems fair i think fair is doing a lot of work there um when you're introducing new content you really want everyone to feel comfortable with it um even if you know even if one person's running it you want everyone else to feel comfortable right and, and the easiest way to do that is to make it you know 
short and understandable. Man, relying on existing rules in D&D, giving them a new spin, I like I that means that I as a player don't have to learn a new concept. I just need to learn some new flavor yeah. essentially. Yeah, and and you mentioned things like, you know, strongholds of followers, kingdoms of warfare before. Like they are especially kingdoms of warfare. It is it is almost like a new game that you're playing um that happens to use proficiency bonus that's that's not a knock against the system but it's more appropriate for later on in the game when the players are looking for okay we've you know we've got all this we want more what else can we engage with you know give me give me more content give me more stuff to learn stuff to master because you know mastery is an important part of playing a game you know the enjoyment of being good at something else how else can my character spread their wings and how else can i spread my wings as a player because when you do get to that later point as a player what you're kind of asking is hey uh, i no longer want to adventure through locations and play D the way it's designed to be played i want to do this in the world so you kind of do like kingdoms of warfare you kind of do need new rules because you can't just go into a goblin cave and kill some goblins and then have a more expansive kingdom that's yeah. not really <laughs> well that's a certain that type of game <laughs> yeah <laughs> sure <laughs> and again it goes back to your first point which is know your players and know know what they want and what they're in for are they have they been playing this game for so freaking long that they're bored of of basic rules and, and they need something really expansive and really crunchy to get into mm-hmm. um or do they just want something to engage with to help enrich their characters which is where something like your alchemy almanac comes in you said bored there which i think is really like a really good choice <laughs> it's a really good word choice like how many games fizzle out because the players are like okay we're bored of this let's start again yeah something like kingdoms of warfare tries to address that problem of like okay we've done this you know can we start fresh to get that initial excitement again of leveling up of of playing with these new mechanics of mastering these mastering these new rules and my stuff tackles a, a, a different problem typically which is how do we get new players and new characters straight into the game right which to, yeah. to, to me, to me, that's a bigger problem. It's probably not so much a problem to Matt Colville because you know he's a great storyteller. <laughs> um, I'm sure he's got no problems, you know, it, roping his players in, you know, hooking them immediately with all this, all these great bardic skills. Totally. But you know, I need the help, and I hope other people, yeah, I hope other people can benefit from my needing the help. <laughs> that was that was all point one on consistency. Point two is a much shorter one, which is completeness, which is um, I don't think rules should kick the can down the road of putting work on the GM. Like the point of rules is that they are public, they're player facing. And that means that if they're going to be useful, they should be complete. And what I mean by that is if there's no rule to begin with, what you have is a helpful little sentence that says ask your DM. And <laughs> and that's that's what rules that's fundamentally what rules are seeking to address. You know, taking work off the off me, off you. Right. I think if a rule goes, okay, we're gonna replace ask your DM with step one, step two, step three, ask your DM, then how much is it really solved? I mean, it may have solved some, but it hasn't gone all the way. It's still putting work on the GM, um, the expectation of work, which is just something I, I, I don't like. I don't want the requirement for me to do some work. I, w- I love the option for me to do some work, but I think there should be a, there should at least be a default. You know, worst case, you know, if someone, if assuming a GM either knows me or some of my previous work and it's like, okay, I trust that guy's content. Then, you know, say that person has, has ran with the armorer's handbook and they have a player who's expressed an interest in you know, making potions and a player comes to them and says, you know, I want to make potions. You know, here's a rule set by that guy, you know, can I? The GM can say, yeah, sure. And they can run it without ever having read it. Right. There's no step in those rules, which comes down to, and the GM is expected to have done some prep for this step. <laughs> there's so many levels that you've taken work off of the dm from that trustworthy source to <laughs> to having to need to read it to never having ask your gm um, because goodness you know now that you mention it how many rule sets and how many books and how many chapters have ended with that phrase ask your mm-hmm. gm and then i have to sit there and go uh how is this going to <laughs> screw me over in the future <laughs> yeah how is this going to trip me up or uh, before i say yes or no yeah exactly it's terrifying there are many times where ask your gm is appropriate 
Um, but these are times where like a really obscure thing comes up. That's the point, in my opinion, of Ask Your GM is like a common one. You know, I'm a barbarian. Can I grapple this goblin and use it like as a club to hit another goblin? Like that's a point where you say, ask your GM, kind of rulings, not rules, all that <laughs> stuff, because it's uh, it's cropped up once. You know, it's a great story moment. Just you know, why would you have a rule to cover that? <laughs> right. But that's that's too much. You know, right. it's it's rules for something that's only going to crop up once in a, a hundred sessions, maybe. And don't worry, your players are going to come up with weirder ideas than that. That's exactly. for sure. <laughs> exactly. So ask your GM is to cover weird situations. Uh, ask your GM to cover, you know. How do I craft a potion? How do I upgrade a weapon? I don't think that's appropriate. Right. So that was number two on completeness. And the third one is balance. This is a bit of a sticky topic. What is balance? What is imbalance? There was a, a tweet by uh, Hannah Rose recently asking you know, exactly this question. And there were you know, a million responses, a million different takes on what balance is. It made me think of uh, this kind of this famous old quote from the, the Supreme Court. I don't know if if you've heard it, you probably have, but I'm not sure you'll know the source, which is um, Mr. Justice, you'll know it when you see it. And I think that's the best. Mm. I think I think that's the only way to define imbalance. Like Balance is invisible. Imbalance, sometimes it's hard to define, but you know when it's there. Yeah, interesting. So like, I did have a crack at, at, at kind of defining it properly to myself. What is imbalance? And you know, my, my best attempt, and this is, I, I don't think it's possible to define it fully, but this is my own best attempt, is imbalance is any content that influences the game in an undesirable way for one or more parties caused by a deviation from the agreed upon rules. Wow, we're going to put that somewhere. That's, yeah, <laughs> I'd say you did a pretty good job. Yeah. But... <laughs> sure. I mean, in, imbalance is that, it's that feeling you get when it's like, oh, I don't like that. Yeah. Where, where someone at the table says, oh, I don't like that, even if they just think it, kind of put a pin or you know, at least put a dent in, in my enjoyment this moment. Like, you know, a, a very slight, depending on the degrees, but a very slight sinking feeling. It's like, oh, that wasn't, hmm. And, and it's completely mechanical. It's not a sinking feeling because of, you know, like uh, a, a cringe role play moment or anything. <laughs> um, and, and I think that's really important because it, it, gets, it gets to the heart of the issue, which is... Balance is important because when imbalance shows up, someone at the table experiences this feeling of like betrayal. I think I think betrayal mm-hmm. is probably the best word I can I can describe to it, but I'm not sure it's the best. And I wonder if this really is as a GM, it's trust your gut. Yeah, you know when something is going to be unfair or imbalanced, or you know you don't necessarily you can, but you don't necessarily need to go to the forums where, you know, very lengthy conversation Absolutely. is going to happen about, you know, what are the odds of these roles and that role? It is, I, I kind of get a sense, you know? Yeah. And I think that the only way to train that gut, unfortunately, in a case like this, is to play more. <laughs> right. Because, like, obviously our gut instincts are better now than the second time we ever sat down behind the screen. Yeah. Fair enough. It's why when I'm publishing content uh, i'll always put the effort in to have an upfront discussion either either an introduction or an appendix or both basically you know trying to almost justify the content itself because because i i think balance is important but i don't think balance is important because everyone should be doing exactly the same amount of damage in combat no that's that's not balance i think it's important because you should feel comfortable when you introduce content that it isn't going to make anyone feel bad including the GM. Um, and I think quite a lot of the reason GMs are hesitant to introduce new content is they're like, oh, well, I'm, I'm not sure. You said this before. Like, I'm not sure if this is going to mess something up down the line. Well, absolutely. That's my problem with magic items is that once you give one out, and this has been all over every forum, is like, uh-oh, I broke my game because I gave one player mm-hmm. this wild magic item. <laughs> mm-hmm. Hey, I'll tell you, I made a spell for that very reason. I'll post it in your Discord, actually, after we've had this, after this episode comes out. Ooh, nice. Secret spells. Cool. Come yeah. check it out. If yeah. if you'll allow me to uh, ham-fist my way through a segue here, though, um, <laughs> right. you know, we were having this conversation prior to, to the recording, but we were talking about the amount of content that's out there. It's difficult for a DM to choose what's good content and what's not great content, what's been thoroughly and intricately thought out 
and what has been just produced because there are production schedules, because this is how I earn my my living. This is, you know, there's a lot of different reasons why content gets put out there. Mm-hmm. And it's it's hard to kind of sift through. Your stuff is rigorously thought out. You know, some some of your documents you've included even the thought processes like the you know when a math teacher says show your work yeah you've you've even got that (laughs) represented and it's so impressive so i would really like to talk a little bit more about you um some of the the stuff that you're working on especially the armor's handbook in our uh, second segment the uh, hero's stage this is the hero's stage where fantastic folk have a spotlight turned to them to tell the tales of their adventurous lives. So we talked a lot about why you make these supplements for your games, but I'm curious, you're putting them out into the community, and that obviously requires a lot more effort than just making them for your own table. (laughs) Probably like a (laughs) hundred times more effort. So what impact do you hope that your supplements are going to have once you put them out there? Like, what are you hoping to do for, for other people? I, I basically, I make one calculation when I decide, you know, whether it's worth putting something out or not. And that's whether the hours I put in will be outdone by the hours saved that it gives other people. So, you know, right. if it takes me a hundred hours to make something, um, is it going to save everyone? more than that 100 hours. So I have plenty of things that I use, you know, that are just kind of more, uh, I would say, niche products. You know, like I have my own tables for for madness. I have a bunch of conditions that I use that that are different from the conditions in the player's handbook. I have all kinds of things like that, but I'm not sure that that kind of thing is going to be a time saver for other people. What an engineer's approach (laughs) to the problem of do do I publish this content is, you know... Do the do the scales equal, or do they do it? Do they? Well, you know, uh, yeah, I, I, I hope I hope they yeah. exceed, you know, massively. <laughs> um, but that, yeah. that's kind of what I'm going for, and, you know. And I can really phrase that in terms of, you know, I'll I'll say something when I have something worth saying. Right on. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's both wildly effective and ridiculously selfless at the same time. How long did it take you to work on? the armor's handbook before you published it like how long were you baking that because you've like you mentioned you've got a lot of different little rules and and pieces Mm. that you use for your own game but how long was that in the oven uh it's it's difficult to say to be honest um because you know can you call session time time spent on that because you know we 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 use it we develop it yeah we give we have feedback you know after after games and stuff um so that's kind of development time but i wouldn't count that because that's just us playing D. sure <laughs> in terms of in terms of you know the time to you know format polish um and the thing about publishing actually is you you iron out a lot of kinks that would otherwise go unnoticed or uncared about at your own table especially when it comes to the you know the specifics of, of the language i i would say the armor's handbook probably was good i'm not thinking in terms of work weeks um maybe six weeks so give that you know 250 hours maybe something like that wow that's not to say that you can sit down and just hammer it out in six weeks you know there's a lot of time is just thinking about it and how long had you used that same kind of rule set even in its uh Uh, maybe infancy yeah in your own games it came out in january 2020 um we probably started playing it uh may 2018 was when we had the first idea I say that because wow. because the alchemy the first version of the alchemy almanac I published in April 2018 just on Reddit and as soon as that one was finished it's like right well now we now we need to do this because I I started with alchemy because my first character was a wizard and I wanted to do alchemy type things <laughs> so even when I was like this was me like four sessions into D and D you know as a player completely brand new right. I was like right I'm going to start. <laughs> homebrewing an alchemy sit home i'm gonna start i'm gonna figure out this problem because it's a problem i'm having and i want to solve it just because that's how my brain works yeah <laughs> the audacity <laughs> three yeah. sessions in and you're <laughs> you're starting to fix all the problems that we've all seen and lived with yeah for the, <laughs> for the recognize them <laughs> <laughs> yeah you you currently are you're using patreon as your testing grounds 
like you've put out a lot of stuff on on the Patreon. Can you tease any of your, you know, kind of some of your favorites right now? Um, well, Patreon, it, it's a testing ground for some things. Um, I don't commit to putting things out on Patreon when it's in like a, a really early stage, because I find that if you just put out like, a, you know, if, if you put something in a Google Doc, and it's kind of all over the place. And you know, unless it's well presented, and by well presented, I mean um, easy to kind of digest. So like it's it's put right. in, it's put in the right order, and you know tables look nice and easy to read and things. People don't tend to read them, and it's it's kind of more confusion than it's worth. So I'll put things on Patreon as like a public playtest when it's kind of most of the way there, and it's just you know here are a couple of issues I'm still having. You know I'll, I'll say that I'll say you know I'm not sure about this this and this. Um, yeah. And people might have feedback on that, but uh, Patreon is more where I'll put these other bits of content that I don't think are kind of top level time savers, but are still things that people might be interested in. So you know, a, a lot of a lot of the Patreon stuff will be um, you know, subclasses, spells, magic items. You know that that stuff that everyone homebrews. Um, but you know, because everyone homebrews it, I kind of consider most of that stuff fairly low value. Got it. Yeah. I've got elemental sorcerers in my Patreon book, but you know there are dozens of other elemental sorcerers out there. So you know if if, if you want if you want mine, you're probably already a fan of my work. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. That's not what's drawn <laughs> drawn me into your Patreon. <laughs> but I want Heavy's take on an elemental sorcerer for sure. Absolutely. Um, it's mostly done. I'm I'm really proud of. Uh, I've got an Earthbender sorcerer in there which i think is Ooh. really really good <laughs> if if i do say so myself that ultimately i don't put things out unless it passes my own sniff test and i'm probably my own worst critic <laughs> like i'm, I'm the, <laughs> sure. the, the reason my rules are generally quite complete is that like you know, in, in terms of rule sets like i will poke all the holes in it um and, <laughs> yeah. in, and in terms of like a fire sorcerer you know like a firebender it will be a result of you know well this is something we were curious about and we spent a lot of time, you know, I, I always start with, okay, well, what, what fantasies are we trying to evoke? And, and that's in anything, but it's especially true for um, things like subclasses. Well, you nailed it for me because that was literally my first character that I wanted to play was an earthbender. And I ended up with something very different because <laughs> D&D didn't give me that. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's answering questions that have come up at our table and, and I think are... You know, worth answering. Some of them are quite silly in there too. Like the content I release is, is generally fairly serious. But you know, on Patreon, I've got things like I've got a, a very obviously dwarf themed warlock patron who's all about having like a your patron is your beard. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. I've got a I've, I've got a I've got a wrestler fighter because I wanted a grappler because it it always annoyed me a little bit that um like the best grapplers in the game were bards. Like, how does that right. make sense? So, and, and barbarians are pretty good too, but still, you know, Lawbard Grappler is where it's at. Um, and, and Rune Knight's a good grappler, but, you know, if, if you want to play, like, you know, a silly character like Zangief, you know, you, you don't yeah. you don't want to be a Rune Knight, do you? I mean, yeah. you know, you know, <laughs> all you want to do is grab. Cool. Well, that's super exciting. I'm, I'm really excited to see everything that you publish. And like we said, it's all so well thought out well approached you know and it and it solves real things and like we kind of talked about in the episode you know we know when our guts say that something is off but i think deep down we also know when something is really good and that i think is evident the first time you you know you flip past the cover art and you go oh there's something really juicy here you know you may not even understand what that is but all of your stuff has it, and it's it's so well thought out. We are huge fans of your work. I so appreciate keep it up. That. Thank you so much. We're also very, very appreciative of all of our patrons. We wouldn't be able to do our stuff without you. So thank you very much, Sue Art. Marley R. Gar the Pirate. Time Warp. Nico Y. Zach G. No Ma'am. Michelle T. Felix R. Chris F. The Senate. Lucas D. Lila G. The GM Tim. Nevermore. Thomas W. Ty N. Tyler G. And <laughs> Heavy Arms. Heavy arms. <laughs> Eric R. And Aldros. Leprechaun. And Will HP. Thank you so much to all of you. Uh, thanks to Tabletop Audio for the sound effects that you heard in this episode. You can follow us at Hook and Chance on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit. You can join the awesome community of players and DMs. You can also get that spell that Heavy Arms said he was going to drop Ooh. on our Discord. 
Uh, huge, huge thanks to you, Heavy Arms, for coming on and sharing your thoughts and putting them in uh, fashion that, man, like some of the things you said really kind of shifted my perspective on some stuff. So I do think that this is one of those episodes that you're going to, like if if you're listening to this, you're going to have to probably come back and listen to it again once you're done <laughs> processing it the first yeah. time. Because I think that's that's where I'm at is just, holy shit, there was so many good things in here. And yeah, we really, really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing them with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, I hope I've saved more than an hour and a half of time. <laughs> exactly. No doubt. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. And, and play, play great, great games. games.